Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the writer Louise Welsh. Louise is the author of several novels with her award-winning debut novel, The Cutting Room, published back in 2002. There then followed Tamburlaine Must Die, The Bullet Trick, Naming the Bones and The Girl on the Stairs. Louise also wrote the Plague Times trilogy, A Lovely Way to Burn, Death is a Welcome Guest and No Dominion which came out between 2014 and 2017, but which are absolutely prescient in relation to the current coronavirus crisis. Louise has also written several plays, an opera, numerous short stories, and edited various collections of writing. And you can also throw in some radio presenting as well. And in one of her many guises, she is also a professor of creative writing at the University of Glasgow, having previously gained a master's in creative writing with distinction no less from the same university and she was also the writer in residence there between 2011 and 2012. Louise thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's lovely to to see you Paul even though we're physically distanced we can see each other on the the Zoom Zoom platform. Yeah it's the wonders of modern technology and you and I we'd obviously had a few conversations before the lockdown about trying to arrange something so it it is nice that we've finally managed to get together for this podcast. It is. It's really nice. Even if I can't offer you a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> you can just put put that one on hold for whenever we get okay. a chance to meet up. <laughs> I mean, I have to start with it, you know, when I was reading through the introduction there. And I think given, you know, the current coronavirus crisis, the lockdown, the first thing that I just want to ask you about is that, that the Plague Times trilogy of novels. And I specifically mentioned the dates because obviously, you know, the last of the, the third novel came out three years ago. I was just wondering, when all this happened, did anybody look round at you and kind of slightly suspiciously say, what did you know that we did? <laughs> well, I, I didn't know anything that, that, that other people didn't about the corona crisis, although um, I think we're all reading and learning quite a lot now about viruses and uh, how to approach them and how not to approach them. When I wrote that, I've always been interested in viruses and plagues. I studied medieval history before I studied creative writing, and I was really interested in the the Black Death, you know, this plague that wipes out a huge percentage of the population, a much larger percentage, of course, than uh, will be hit by the, the corona crisis. But what interested me was the economic and social results of that. And that, I think, was really why I wanted to write the Plague Times trilogy, because I was interested in how uh, economic systems work and how social systems work. And I'm also interested in what kind of society would we like to live in? What would be the perfect type of society? So this trilogy started off in the world of big pharma and the idea of what happens when healthcare is not something that you roll out to people that need it, but when it's actually something that particularly people want to make a profit out of. Uh, The second volume looks at prisons and the prison system and how do we, as a society, uh, think of people that are incarcerated and what happens to them in a crisis. And we've seen that already in other crises, but we, we can see what's happening now. And the final volume was particularly thinking about so resolution really it's set five years after my particular plague and it takes uh, people on a, the central characters on an odyssey back from orkney down through to the central belt of scotland where we are just now and it explores different types of governance dictatorship kind of socialism feudalism and and things like that and of course it also looks at something else that i'm interested in slavery both contemporary and historical because of course When you get these huge inequalities, then you get these huge injustices as well. So I think it is it is a kind of current book because, of course, I think with the corona crisis, we're seeing these inequalities. They're they're writ large, and if people didn't realise that they existed, they're they're very 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 hard to ignore at the present time. I think you know the the haves and the have-nots, but also how we as individuals approach something like corona. If you're young and healthy. Do you think, well, it doesn't matter? You know, I'm not going to socially distance because even if I get it, I will survive 
Or do you think, well, I'm young and healthy, but I don't want to kill my relatives. I don't want to kill strangers by default. Uh, and we're seeing that play out as well. And I'm quite interested in, um, yeah, how, how that's happening. So it'll be a while before we really know the results of this virus. But those are all the things that I was interested in when I was writing these books. Because I immediately started thinking about those books and particularly the, the first one where there was that kind of sense of, although you're kind of setting it as, you know, you're imagining what might happen. You can actually, when you're reading it, you're thinking, you can see how quickly society can crumble. You, the things that you think are absolutely built on solid foundations, suddenly they're not. And it's obviously it's maybe not quite the extreme that we're going through just now, but still, as you say, it's, it's interesting how people and groups and communities, etc., are reacting differently to it. Yeah, and some people are coming together and you see great social cohesion. You see people volunteering. You see people looking after their neighbours. You see people making sure that other people who aren't able, making sure that they don't go hungry. So we see, I don't want to be bleak because we see a lot of really positive community coming together. Within the first book, I mean, it is, of course, it's fiction. It's a thriller and you're ramping up the action. But I wanted to set it in London, in a big world city, in the heart of capitalism, you know, the real exciting world city, an international place. And of course, you know, these huge cities uh, with high, high density of population, it does have a massive effect on these places. But yeah, I wanted to start in the heart of capitalism and then end up in uh, the opposite, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And I think regardless of, of whether yeah. people want fiction to mirror real life, I would certainly say to anybody, that those books at any time, are, that, that trilogy is well worth reading anyway. So... That's the first of our book recommendations is, is, uh, is, your, is your books, then we'll go from yes. there. Get, get away from it all by reading about something that's actually worse exactly. <laughs> than, what, than what we're experiencing. Now, the course of, of the podcast, we'll, we'll maybe chat more about your writing. I mean, I'd mention again, just the kind of the breadth of platforms of writing that you do. You obviously you teach up at the university, but also I want to take you on your own literary journey. And we go back to your childhood. So the first choice that I always ask people on the podcast is your favourite book from childhood. And you actually gave me two choices. And that was, first one was Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson. And the other one was Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr. Okay, I mean, there's so many books, aren't there? There's just amazing books that, that you read as a child. And I think you maybe read with an intensity and focus that we don't always retain as adults. Like a lot of people, we used the library a lot when I was a child. So we used the library once, twice a week. We didn't have a lot of books in the house. We didn't need them. We had them up the road at the library. And I had an adult ticket from quite an early age. My dad asked if I could get an adult ticket because uh, he felt that I, I needed it. <laughs> it was an essential item. Treasure Island is a book, though, that I didn't initially read by myself. Treasure Island is a book that I have a very strong memory of my dad reading this book to me. And I can see the book. It was a book from the library. I can see the map. I can see the skeleton. I can see uh, the compass on the map. Really, really exciting. And I think it was partly perhaps that my dad, I could tell he was excited to read it to me. But also what an amazing story that is. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. It's got a little boy, <laughs> Jim Hawkins. And I think as it's, it's children we read ourselves into the story we we inhabit these different genders it didn't matter to me that this was a boy I was there I was in the apple barrel I was being chased by these pirates the bit I remember most of all of, of, from this reading by my dad is the moment when uh, blind Hugh makes little Jim Hawkins deliver the black spot to the to the captain in the Ben the Admiral Benbow Inn and the captain sees the black spot and he falls down dead on the floor and I remember saying to my dad what's the black spot and he said you will find out tomorrow and closed the book and said right time for bed and I couldn't go to bed and my mother was like John what have you done to that bairn <laughs> but that taught me a lot you know that the power of literature the power of black and white words on the page they have the power to frighten you and to keep you awake at night you know and that that's maybe the yeah that love of that kind of visceral scary I still like reading scary books I still have moments when I can't go to sleep because I read something too frightening and I think that started at a, a really early age it's funny that book and I think it you know particularly when you read it at a young age it does have an impact on you because one of the previous guests in the podcast Joe Donnelly and he I think again his dad had read it to him and then he, he said he, he was scared 
going to school because he just kept, he was he was worried that he was going to get the black spot. So, <laughs> but just, you know that, it shows you how how much people take that to heart. But I suppose it's that it's also that apart from the fact it's the story, it's that shared experience that you have. I, I reading it with your dad. It's just something that it transports you back. I suppose to that time of him just sitting reading, and as you say, he's probably enjoying it as much as you. But then passing on that love of the book to you. It's a really precious experience, and I'm still a, a great fan of Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, and I think Stevenson was somebody, he, as you know, he had very, very bad health, and he wrote this book at a point when his health was terrible. I think he wrote it in Bournemouth, and his, his health is, you know, he, he's potentially facing death. You know, there's, there's no guarantee that he's going to survive the illnesses that he has, and yet he does survive until uh, his early 40s. He's somebody who loves to sail. He loves, you know, these journeys, these maps are central to his life. But I think Stevenson's very interesting because he is, I, I'm not even sure that I really like the term post-colonial. I'd rather say anti-colonial. I think he's an anti-colonial writer way before people are doing this, you know. And he precedes Conrad. He's writing at a time of huge racism. And that love of journey, that love of travel and this ill health eventually takes him to Samoa where he's still revered you know and he was a, a real ally of the Samoan people in trying to fight against colonialism and he put his uh, he put his reputation where you know where his feelings were and is still respected in that country as well so I think his, his work means a lot to me still as a grown-up. Were you always someone who read maybe above your the age that you know the books were intended for you is that just something that because you took to books as you say you got an adult ticket very early on? I think I was very lucky you know my mum and dad were both very committed readers, but they weren't censorious readers. So they wouldn't say, oh, is that book not a bit young for you? Or is that book not a bit old for you? I'm sure if they saw something with, if the cover was too lurid, they might <laughs> they might investigate it. But this was the 70s and the 80s. There are a lot of lurid covers going around, you know. So I, I don't know that I always did read above. Maybe I would read younger books as well, you know. And it's hard to remember what age you read particular things at as well, isn't it? It all becomes part of the whole. But I think the gift that they gave me as well as the gift of reading was the gift of you should enjoy what you're reading as well. And now, you know, books are my job as well. And sometimes you are reading a book that's not your heart's desire to read it. And I, I remind myself that I'm allowed to read books for fun too. And I think I never want to lose that pleasure that I get from a, a really good book or a fun book, whether it's considered uh, highbrow or whatever brow, eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> the other book that you'd, you'd selected for this category was Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr. It's a beautiful book and I would recommend it to any parent. I'm not sure again what age range it's meant, but it's for a, so a little girl and she's, uh, she's very unwell. And when I was a, a child, I spent quite periods in hospital and stuff and quite often for clumsiness <laughs> it's a very clumsy child and I think it's a book that we can all relate to Marianne is uh, forced to stay in bed and she starts to draw these pictures and the pictures invade her dreams but they're also part of the real world as well uh, she draws a house with boulders around it and the boulders start to become closer. So it's, again, it's a spooky book. It's a really spooky book. And I think it's a book that works on the unconscious. And I'm quite interested in that. But it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a book about a child's imagination and how the child's imagination can create monsters. And, and I, I just think I read it at the right time. And it's a, a story that's always stayed with me. I mean, you said already that there's still times now where you sometimes read something and it kind of scares you a bit, but is that even, you were saying how you still want to enjoy, but is that still an enjoyable thing, even though it's like oh, yeah. <laughs> being scared by, by the words on the page? It is. I mean, that's why we go to the, the horror movies, isn't it? You know, and that's why we love Stephen King. You know, I, I love his books. When they come out, if I can afford it, I'll go and buy them the hardback. You know, I don't, I don't wait for the paperback to come out if he's got a new novel. So I think there's a, what is it? There's some kind of adrenaline rush, I guess, that you get from being scared. But I think there's more than that. I think uh, scary books work, as I said, on the unconscious. And there's why are we afraid of the things that we're afraid of? Uh, well, we're scared of the dark for quite good reasons, I suppose. There could be something. There could be something there. <laughs> uh, we're scared of particular situations for good reasons. But actually. 
the ghost stories of different periods reflect quite clearly what those societies are, are afraid of. And I, I made a, an anthology some years ago called Ghost. It was called uh, 100 Stories to Read with the Lights On. And I don't know how you'd read it with the lights <laughs> off. but <laughs> And it was published by Head of Zeus. And to find 100 stories, I really had to read hundreds of ghost stories. And it was really interesting. There's points when uh, people are uh, particularly scared of people of colour. And I think this is during the height of the colonialism, colonial era, era, you know, when people must be aware that they've stolen and they've looted and they've plundered and that this isn't going to, you know, it's not going to last forever. This colonial, I don't even know what you call it, the empire. There are periods during the suffragette campaign for the vote when a lot of ghost stories really seem to be frightened of women. You know, women and women's power appears over and over again during that period. Naturally, people are always scared of losing their children. And this is something that comes into ghost stories from the earliest ones right up to the contemporary period. You know, that's a real close and visceral fear that people express in these stories. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many of them. And I think that's quite an interesting uh, way to think about it. It gives a, an outlet to our fears, but uh, it can also be a, a roller coaster and an adrenaline ride. Now, in terms of books that, that scared me, that unnerved me, this takes me perfectly on to your, your second choice, which was your book from student years, which is the, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. And I have to, to be honest, when I read that book, it really chilled me. I, I found it quite, uns- not quite unsettling, it was very unsettling. I mean, an absolutely brilliant book, but I, I think it would, I'd have to pluck up the courage to read that again. I love it. I love it for that for that reason and for many other reasons as well. You know, I think part of the unsettlingness of it, well, Hogg knows a lot about folk stories. You know, he knows a lot about folklore and these things, of course, too connect with our unconscious. Hogg knows how to tell a brilliant story. Uh, and he starts off in quite a typical Gothic way, you know, by saying this is, of course, a true story. And there are elements of truth within it. But for us coming to as a, a reader, you're like, oh, is it true? But there's something that makes a, makes it a, a true story is more has more weight, more power, doesn't it? There's there's no accident, you know, that thing when you say my friend's cousin's brother told it was actually there you know they actually saw this whatever event it is because the the element of truth adds something he also tells it in a a voice that we recognize you know he tells it a lot of it's written in the vernacular a lot of it's uh written in scots but i think it's also a very funny book it's a really amusing book so to that mixture between horror and uh it's not comedy you wouldn't call it comedy but humor is a a really close one you know yeah, the, the laugh being close to the screen. He, he uses that really well. And then the way that the book is constructed in itself is also, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's unsettling. It's not a straightforward linear narrative. It's an unsettling coming together of different stories. And I guess the other reason that I love it, again, comes back to Stevenson, you know, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was a huge amount to hog and the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner and i think he thinks about that structure too that idea of letters within letters and rooms within rooms and houses that you didn't realize you entered from this lane as well as from the front and so i think i think it's a hugely uh, pleasing beautifully written bewildering mesmerizing frightening book but i also really appreciate the uh, ongoing effect it has on scottish literature it's funny for people who are regular listeners to this podcast, one of my constant moans is from when I was coming through secondary school, there was very little Scottish literature that we were taught. So I came to books like this much later and when there is this whole treasure trove of, of great Scottish literature, then I just think it's a shame that we, we weren't given it at the time. But also, just the very fact, I think it was 1824, it was published. What always amazes me with these books is that it's nearly 200 years old. You can pick it up today and it has that impact on you. And that, that's, you know, you're talking about the quality of the writing. That, that's testament to that. It absolutely is. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't read it until uh, I was at university. That's when I found that book. I find, you know, trying to remember what books we read at school, I wouldn't want to do down any of my teachers because maybe there are books that I forgot. But my impression is that we didn't really get a lot of Scottish literature. Burns once a year. 
we would learn our poem <laughs> once a year to recite with Robert Burns. You and I would be kind of contemporaries in terms of that time of that kind of curriculum. And I think, I don't know for whether it was accident or design, they shied away from a lot of what would have been great, great Scottish books. Yeah, we got a lot of angry young men. So we got a lot of North of England writing. I seem to remember the, you know, the, the cupboards being full of those books. And there was, you know, they was, these were really excellent books. And I don't think you only have to read books that you relate to, but I think it is very helpful if there are some books that you could relate to on the curriculum, because what, what does literature do for us? Well, it can open up other worlds, but it can also uh, inform your own world. And I mean, there's nothing, the act of seeing somebody like you on the page, the power of that cannot be underestimated. And that goes, of course, with theatre and movies and music as well. It legitimises you, doesn't it? If you feel yeah. that you have to be American or white, or straight or whatever it is to count it doesn't help your personal development yeah i mean it's that kind of idea as almost like a role model for you as a reader and a writer that, that if you as you say you don't necessarily have to have everything that relates to your own circumstances or your own surroundings but i think definitely that age it definitely helps it really does and uh, you know as you know at the point when we were growing up there was great work being done in the vernacular you know they had James Kelman, Alistair Gray, Liz Lockhead, Tom Leonard, Janice Galloway, of course. Many writers. There's people that are missing out now as well. I think the impression that we got, although there were Agnes Owens, you know, there were women writers. I think the impression that I got a lot of the time was that a lot of Scottish writing was very white. It was straight. It was mainly, mainly male, I think. Mm -hmm. So, we, yeah, so nowadays, of course, I think diversity within Scottish literature is increasing and is uh, to be celebrated as well. Absolutely. So that's the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Is that a book that would go under the, the guise of don't read this with the lights off? But as you say, how do you read it then? <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I did quite a lot of reading with a torch yeah. under the under the covers because my, my sister and I shared a room. So I don't know if that still goes on. You know, it would, the, be, the, it would be the light off your mobile phone now. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> yeah. But under the cover reading, that's a great book. You know, just any time, any place, anywhere, I think, dive in. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest this week, Louise Welsh. And Louise, we're on to the third book choice in this podcast, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone, and it's a book called Severance by Ling Ma. Yeah, so this is a book that I just read uh, a couple of months ago. It's just out. And again, actually, it explores a pandemic. Please don't let that put you off. <laughs> <laughs> She, what a writer she is. What an amazing writer. It's set now, it's set in the here and now. It's set in Manhattan and a, a much more serious pandemic than the one we we're experiencing has launched. And the central character is a young Chinese-American woman who seems to have some immunity to this virus. And there, there are various people that have immunity. She's an amazing writer. And I think it explores partly an expression of what it is to be a first-generation American, so first-generation Chinese-American. Her mother and father have come there from China and settled there. And I just found it witty, beautifully observed, and it has this element of jeopardy as well. So I think it's uh, one for anybody from the, the age of 15 upwards. Because it's, it's kind of funny, it goes back to what I was saying at the start of the, your Plague Times trilogy and, and we're, we're not necessarily recommending all the books that kind of matter what's going on but it, it is incredible that I suppose writers are always fascinated by something that kind of really fundamentally changes people's world, people's habits, people's attitudes and I suppose something like a, a pandemic, we mentioned Stephen King with The Stand for example, you know, it's something I suppose that, that runs through literature. It does. It ups the ante, doesn't it? You know, yeah. people are really forced to think what they're, they're going to do. I think this is a heroine for our times. And of course, she wrote it before this current crisis. And she has everybody saying, well, of course, this came from China. And she experiences uh, the result of that as well. 
Because I think, if I'm, I'm right, is this her debut novel? It's an amazing debut. It's one of those debuts that you can't think, where has she been and what will she do next? Because yeah. my question to you then was, when I mentioned again your debut novel, The Cutting Room, which not only would get garnered a lot of praise, you know, people loved the book, but it got lots of you know, awards and acknowledgement as well. Obviously, as a writer, the, the thrill of getting your first book published is incredible in itself, but then when it gets that validation... It, does that give you a real boost or is there, was there a wee part of you thinking there's a wee bit of pressure on me now because the cutting room did so well or was it just did you just embrace all that it was all joy it was all joy you know I would I would never never ever complain about having a success with my first book it was joy partly because it meant I could write another book you know that that was a very practical outcome of it but also um, the cutting room was written at a particular time and the cutting room of course, uh, as a openly gay protagonist who is happy that he's gay, Rilke. And I was writing this during the Keep the Class campaign. Mm. And you will remember this. A lot of people perhaps have... It's the 30th anniversary of that this year, the Keep the Class campaign. And you'll remember Section 28, which uh, said that... It's hard to express it, really. It said that teachers were not allowed to uh, encourage homosexuality. And it was one of those fuzzy lines. What it ended up meaning in reality was that teachers did not discuss homosexuality. There was no discussion of homosexuality in schools. There was no uh, sex education, uh, same-sex education. It was like a, a government endorsement of homophobia and it led to a lot of prejudice. And at that time, Sutter, uh, Lord, now Lord Sutter, did a private polling of every house in this land in Scotland as the clause was about to be repealed and said, you do not want people like this, you know, being teaching your children. There are massive, there are billboards, there are billboards, one of them saying something like, as a father, I do not, you know, I, I worry if I have a gay teacher teaching my child. And this was allowed, you know, this level of hatred. What actually happened was that people on the whole refused to fill these cards in and the the clause was abolished the clause was repealed scotland is a much for queer people for gay lesbian transgender intersex people a much better place to live than it was during that period so this repeal of the clause i think was important but that was the point at which i was writing the book and a lot of the dismay that i felt went into that book and so the success of that book wasn't just an endorsement of the writing it made me feel better because it made me feel <laughs> that perhaps less people hated the, the queers than we sometimes were led to believe. Because I suppose, I suppose it's one of those things that you never, you would never want to be complacent because you saw that again at the time when the whole issue of equal marriage and that whole campaign that there was a, I think some of the kind of viciousness surrounding people who were against that took me by surprise because you, you would like to think that people had moved on. So I suppose you always have to be aware that sadly there is that, sometimes that element is bubbling there and, and Sometimes it gets a inverted commas cause that it can latch onto. So yeah, and we and we know this, you know, as grown ups, we know that prejudice exists horribly, you know, against uh, anyone who's considered. Well, you, I was going to say anyone who's considered an outsider, but there's prejudice against women, and fifty percent of the population, roughly, are women. So uh, yeah, that's is something that we've got to recognise and be vigilant about as we're speaking. There are riots going on across America. And it's important to say Black Lives Matter. It's important to say equality matters and to try and stand up and be allies when we can. Going back to what you, I think we were talking about right at the very start, about how something like this coronavirus crisis highlights inequalities, whether it's inequality economically, in America, obviously, socially, in terms of racial differences, and I think that's kind of just blown up, and it's been there. But I think this has probably helped bring it to the to the surface. And, and you know, in the short term, it looks terrible. But you hope that more people are maybe aware of what has been going on in America and continues to go on. But if it's not been filmed by somebody passing by in a mobile phone, it's swept under the carpet. Yeah, and we, I remember uh, Rodney King. You know, I remember the the video of uh, Rodney King getting beaten and being young enough to just be like, what? what, how can that be possible? And now, decades later, we're witnessing the same prejudice, the same, yeah, the institutionalised racism, 
but of course we have to recognise that we have it in our country as well. We have it Absolutely, in Scotland, yeah. we have it in the, the wider United Kingdom. And so we have to um, be vigilant. I remember uh, we were at school, primary school, when you remember the first TV broadcast Roots, when Roots was on. Yeah. And I was yeah. allowed to stay up late to watch it. My mum and dad would let me stay up late to watch it. And I remember again, this, you know, this is a seminal programme for me, TV show. And I remember thinking, these Americans are terrible people. You know, those Americans were dreadful. And not making that connection with Scotland and the North Atlantic slave trade and not having that at that period, I think it's becoming or is part of the curriculum to an extent now, that these connections weren't made in school. And it's later on with your own reading uh, and your own explorations that you find these things out sometimes. You know, in Scotland, we're beginning to uncover that history and beginning to acknowledge it in various ways, but we're still behind, you know. Yeah. One, just one final question on the cutting room. And it, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on about when we were growing up, the lack of Scottish literature and that kind of role models. And you mentioned, obviously, the main character in that is openly, confidently gay man. And again, maybe, you know, you might not know, or maybe you've heard anecdotally of, you know, maybe young gay men and women who are reading that, a book and, again, validates them and gives them confidence and that they see themselves, perhaps, in, in literature. It's important to, to have that, isn't it? To be able to see yourself. I certainly never really thought about that when I was writing it. So, you know, if that has a knock-on effect, you know, that would, that kind of thing's a privilege, I think, you know, for me. I think I was writing out of a lot of rage, but also in a way writing what I knew, but also writing at arm's length. And I think perhaps that's why the central character is male rather than female. I don't know. It's You, you never quite you're never 100% sure what you're doing or why you do it, and especially at this distance. But um, yeah, it's important. We need representation. And yet we can't just write for representation either. So we have to, I suppose, encourage writers and readers from uh, all backgrounds and all experiences to, to pick up the pen or tap away at the laptop. See, that's you showing your age when you pick up the pen. Everybody's now on laptops, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I am, no, pick up the crayon. And I guess the other thing is we need that wider industry. You know, we need uh, yeah. the publishers to stand up. We need the booksellers to stand up. And that's why we need, apart from just equality, is what we need as a nation, you know, because without equality, you don't get the, the most talented people. If you're, if you're cutting off part of the population you're never going to get people of real talent you know if it's just you get into a role because of privilege well that's not working out very well for us right now in in terms of the government and it doesn't work well elsewhere if it's all white men or white women in publishing then of course you know that the writers of color are not i don't know talent spotted or uh found in the way that they should be we go, and I always like this leap in the podcast, where we go from getting you to recommend a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book you couldn't be paid to read again. And when, when uh, yeah. we were corresponding, you said, this is hard because I'm cheap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't think of a book that I would say, you know, that if I was on a desert island and there was only this particular book, I wouldn't read it. Willie Maley, who you obviously know from Glasgow University, and when he came on the podcast and he said, the last thing his wife had said to him was, for that question, make sure the author's dead. And then <laughs> a more recent guest had chosen this book as a book he couldn't be paid to read again, and he said, I imagined it was the sort of thing that Jeremy Clarkson would like, and I thought, that's a brilliant recommendation for anything not to read. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people... You know, quite a lot of the writers that I've had on, I think it's also the idea that because it's a subjective thing anyway, and you don't want to, because it would be nothing worse if, if you were sitting listening to an episode and somebody chose one of your books, for example, or another writer. <laughs> so I, I can understand why, why yeah. it becomes a difficult thing. Although, you know, most writers now have a, quite a thick skin. After a while, you get a thick skin, and that's not to say that you can't be hurt, but, Is that the, but you, you know, get over it. Yeah, is that the social media age that's had to make you like that? Because people can be quite brutal. Well, I don't read Amazon reviews, for instance. I just don't read them. But I think as a writer, you can learn from reviews. You know, sometimes you read a review and there's something in it and you think, yeah, I agree with that. You know, there's a negative comment. And so you can, you can learn from stuff. You can perhaps identify things. Really, really trying to think of a book that I would never read again. You know, I think we were talking about school earlier, and I remember 
we had to read Laurie Lee as I stepped out. As, as I stepped out. As I walked right. out one midsummer morning. Yeah, so we, we had a particular teacher at that point, and his method of teaching this book was to read it to us. And we were secondary school children, and I think the teaching of it gave me a visceral dislike of that book. So I think that would be one that I would struggle to pick up again. But I've heard people reading extracts of it on the radio since and thought that sounds like a really good book. Yeah. <laughs> but I, do, I don't think I could... I think because of that experience, it, it takes the sight of that book takes me back to this classroom and the feeling of being shut in and not able to escape. Yeah, and I think that's a really horrible feeling. That's the kind of other side of the coin of Treasure Island, which your dad read to you and having that brilliant experience. And yeah. I, again, you know Chris Dolan, the writer who's, yes, yeah. who's done a few of these podcasts with me and he, he loves that book. And he's also, he's got a book coming out where he kind of re, has recreated that journey that Laurie Lee made and he cycled through Spain. So I'm sure next time you meet him, he'll be, he'll be telling you that you really need to give yeah. it another go. You know, if Chris read it to me, <laughs> I would like that. I would really like that. And I'm a fan of Chris's books. So I would read his book and maybe that could be an entry point right. for me to this book because I feel I've been there. It's nothing to do with the book. It's some kind of mild PTSD <laughs> cool shall, experience. I shall tell him to, to start gargling his throat with honey for the, uh, the reading. That would be nice. <laughs> if we could do it sort of around about 11 o'clock and then I could be tucked up. Right. <laughs> he could laptop there and he could Zoom me with Excellent. an episode each night. <laughs> that, that, could be a, that could be a really new innovation for Zoom. Nights <laughs> Not bad, eh? Because one of the things I was going to ask you again, touched on earlier on the fact that books are now part of your life, your professional life. You're a writer. You teach creative writing. Is there times where you pinch yourself as you know, as somebody who you know grew up with that love of reading, and and you've been able to to make a life, a professional life, as a an author, but then you're obviously then in, into academia as well, and encouraging the next generation of writers. Yeah, I don't take it for granted. I don't think there was anything inevitable about being able to make my my living through writing through reading through talking to other writers and working with other writers there was no inevitability there and there was no plan either you know there was absolutely no plan I never met anyone that had been to university I think apart from the doctor who and the dentist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we didn't see the dentist very often, actually. But uh, until I was at university, you know, I, I left school at 17 to work in an office. I met students who were doing the kind of summer, you know, the summer cover. I got on with them and sort of thought, this is something I could potentially do. So I worked for about a year and a half uh, and I applied to university at that point. You know, I'm a real believer in education that opened so many doors for me and not just the doors of the mind but the the people that I met the different just different possibilities that you saw you know and it's it's not straightforward because you don't you don't know what you're doing and you don't have the handbook or the example sometimes you feel everybody else is a wee step ahead of you because you don't you you don't know what you're doing but a lot of my friends didn't know what they were doing either and this is something you know with Glasgow University that uh, obviously I'm a graduate of that university. I work there. I was writing residence. It has been very good to me. But I think it's also a place that, in my experience, welcomes working class students and welcomes people who, you know, whose parents have not been to university, who's the, the first time student. And so I think as a society, um, this is something that we need to do. And the, the, the financial barriers that have grown and grown and grown for people, I think, is something that you know, if, if we're reassessing society, let's reassess that. Because how do we, how do we help people realise their best if we put those kind of barriers in place? Because I also think, and again, I'm kind of surmising here that some of the students that you will see coming through your course and that you will have got to know and, and help nurture their talent. And there must come a point when, you know, if and when they get published, that there'll be that kind of sense of real pride of, of even just having a, a wee bit to do with their journey and, and helping them on their way. I think that's what everybody in the, the creative writing team feel actually. I feel incredibly fortunate. I've only worked in this role for about four years. I work two days a week so I'm, I'm very very part-time and I work with colleagues that are full-time 
we have this really nice team. They work hard. They do, you know, they, they work really, really hard. There's a diverse genres. You know, there's poets, there's essayists, there's people that are writing creative nonfiction, there's novelists, there's people working different genres. Everybody's nice. <laughs> and that sounds like such a silly thing to say. And I think, I think there's this kind of myth that the creative arts are full of people that are trying to cut each other's throat. And that has never been my experience, you know, in theatre as well as in publishing and, you know, and in music. In my experience, most people want to pull somebody up with them, you know. It's like that, remember that wee game that you get with the plastic monkeys and they had to lick the hands? And, <laughs> and make a, I think yeah. it's like that, you know, I think in my experience, people are trying to pull somebody up with them. And I think actually that is part of the obligation of being a writer, of being an artist, of whatever it is that you're doing. There are points when you focus completely on your own work and that is the only way that you're going to get your work done is to focus on that. But with that, I think there's an obligation on us to to try and help other artists. And that doesn't mean that you'll read every single novel that people send to you because then you would never write your own books. But, that you, yeah, that you, you try and um, have a, have conversations and nurture other people's creativity as much as you can. Because sometimes it is just like a word of encouragement can make all the difference. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing, the honesty of creative artists. So I think for people out there who are writing just now, if an established, you know, or a, a writer who's publishing, if they write to you or they speak to you and they say something positive about your work, they mean it because it's yeah. too important. <clears throat> they, don't, they don't just say it to make you feel nice. Well, you know, they, they would say... Um, look over there if <laughs> they don't like it you know they, would, they wouldn't they wouldn't tell you that it was good if they didn't think it was good so I think for people that are writing when you get those words of encouragement even if it's from the, an editor who says I'm sorry we're not going to publish this but we thought it had a huge amount of merit and it made the last round of our very competitive editorial meeting I think it's hard to take rejection and I've had that experience you know and it, it doesn't feel good but actually take those positive words because, uh, well, basically they don't encourage ev- everybody because uh, if they encourage them, they'll keep sending them stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they only encourage people they really want to send more stuff. We are now on to the fifth and final choice, uh, and that's a book, either the last book you've read or the book that you've currently, you're currently reading and the one that you've given me is The Mirror and the Light, which is the, the final part of the Hilary Mantel Wolf Hall trilogy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm down to the last 200 pages and uh, it's about Thomas Cromwell being in his mind for quite a while now. It's a big book because at 800 pages, it's not going to end well. And I'm filled with this, I'm filled with dread. I'm actually going to try and set aside a particular point to read the end because it's just going to be devastating. She is an amazing writer. She's such an amazing writer. And she's a writer that I've read for quite a long period. And one of the things I love about reading her is she's got better. And I think that's something, you know, her early books were good, but now she's writing these masterpieces. And I think that's encouraging for all of us. We all want to try and get better. I might never hit the heights that Hilary Mantel does, but I want to get better. It's a complex book. It's a book that she uses point of view in a really interesting way and I can't quite work out technically how she's doing it but I'm really interested in it and uh, she evokes this world you know this world of the Tudor court. You feel that you could there are points when you're there and it's a book that you can just lose yourself in but I'm also interested in how she's building this dread and how much she's working with what we know of the actual history and how much the dread is uh, down to her writing and her evocation of it. She's, she's amazing. She's absolutely remarkable. And I guess in a way she's also working with a, an established arc of somebody who comes from low beginnings, humble beginnings, you know, a, a blacksmith's son who rises to these amazing heights and then it crashes and I guess we see it, you know, you see it in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, don't you? People that you think, there's, there's always a point, a tipping point. And when I watch Goodfellas, there's points when you think, just leave. Just, you're still alive. You can escape. And I'm at that point with Thomas Cromwell just now. And I think there's something really fascinating about these really driven 
talented, ambitious characters who make it to the top and keep on going. You know, that sort of Icarus thing. And then suddenly you crash. And it happens over and over and over again. And I sort of wonder why it's a, a really interesting thing about human nature, isn't it? You know, and I, I guess I write things that are in the crime genre. And I think with crime that happens as well. People have this, they can't, you know, you see it with very successful con artists. They want to go for the last big one. But if that, that'll never be the last big one because there'll always be another big one around the corner. You made an interesting point there. I was wondering, and again, it goes back early on, you said, you have to tell yourself you're allowed to just read for purely enjoyment so you can read all sorts of different books but is a part of you as well that as you say that you're maybe not forensically going through a book as a writer but are you again trying to maybe analyze how somebody's writing their style their structure all the different elements that interest you in terms of the craft I suppose? I guess in a way so if I'm reading for a book that I think uh, would be useful for another writer that I'm working with or for a class that I'm doing I would read, my aim would be to read the book twice and I would read it the first time for fun and then I would read it the second time a bit more forensically to think, okay, well, why did that work or why did that bit not work? But my, my main goal is always just to feel it as a, an effect, you know, and just to have that reading experience. And I guess when I look at other writers' works, you know, students' work, usually I'm reading their, their work about three times, but the first time I read it, I read it for fun because I want to see what's this what's this doing and of course it's not always fun sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's harrowing sometimes it's uh, disgusting <laughs> sometimes it's frightening but uh, I guess what I mean is that is the writer having the effect yeah so you just want to, to experience this as a reader but I think sometimes when you're reading as a reader you notice bits that are particularly good you know yeah or sometimes particularly not good because I was wondering as well when we you know, the Hilary Mantel, because of the, the the success of the first two books in terms of, you know, popularity, but also the both of them won the Booker Prize. That, that, I suppose for her, that's a challenge and a pressure because, you know, the anticipation ahead of, of The Mother and the Light was incredible. Oh, it was, yeah. We just, you know, I had it on pre-order. <laughs> it's amazing. But I've never met Hilary Mantel, but I've heard her speak often. And she strikes me as a very sensible person and somebody who's writing the best possible book that she can. So I don't know how she feels about that pressure. And certainly, you know, she's had pelters thrown at her. Do you remember when she, she wrote about uh, the death of Margaret Thatcher, the assassination of Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> yeah. You know, she and she, uh, yeah, she had absolute pelters thrown at her for this actually really good short story. You know, completely, if you read it, completely inoffensive. Not offensive at all, this short story. So, um I think she'll be able to take it, yeah. But I think there's there must be massive pressures on authors that have her level of sales, not least, you know, that the publishing aid industry is relying on you as well. People's jobs are yeah. probably hanging on how well your book does. But I think she'll be able to cope with it. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure she will. In terms of, we're almost out of, of time for the podcast, but in terms of your own writing during this, this lockdown period, how have you found that in terms of either inspiration or just, you know, because people are having to adjust all different types of, of the way we behave, the way we act, and how does that impact on your writing? Yeah, well, I guess there's, like everybody else, you've got this uh, anxiety, you know, and I, was, I felt anxious that I couldn't go and visit my dad, you know, I wasn't, he lived in, lives in Edinburgh and I felt anxious that I couldn't see friends, you know, the people that you, that you would normally see and who you want to see. Uh, so that anxiety that everybody else has, I think, can affect your, your focus. But like everybody else, you know, then you try and knuckle under and just get on with it. Um, and I think if you can focus in that way, that escape to another place can be quite a release, you know, when it works. Um, so I just, my method is uh, I turn up to the desk and I put the computer on and I'm not allowed to leave. <laughs> so just like a normal job, you know. So if it's, not, yeah. if it's not going well, you have a day when it's not going well and hopefully if you keep it up, then you have a day that goes well, you know, and that, that often leads to another day that goes well. So it's just, there's a cycle and you just, I guess the advantage that I have is from having written other books is that I know that there'll be very difficult days, but that you get through them. You know, you've hit the wall before and you've somehow managed to negotiate it. So that's the, the only advantage, I think, uh, 
writing books is that you know you've done it before. I suppose for people who, who maybe haven't written books, that's the, the challenge. It's not necessarily the idea or, or the initial burst. It's that kind of, you know, when it, when the really the job part kicks in and there's the, the long, hard graft of even getting that first draft finished and then from there you can sculpt it into the the finished manuscript well you know there's a really beautiful world outside the window and maybe the people that don't write the book are the sensible ones because there's this beautiful beautiful world and you know in glasgow right now i don't know if it'll be the same by the time the podcast's broadcast (laughs) but we have this amazing day you know and i'm sitting indoors at my desk that isn't maybe the most sensible thing to do so maybe the people that go you know what I'd prefer to read the books rather than write them. We've had the chance to sit and, and chat about books for an hour, so it's, that's quite It's easy. not so bad, is it? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's been nice to chat about books, and it's been nice to chat because uh, we're a bit uh, constricted just now in the, yeah. the conversations of the people that we're meeting, so it's really lovely to, to get a chance to chat to you. Well, it has been fantastic. For anybody who's been listening, if you go into my website, com, and each of the podcast guests have their own page where I just list the book choices, you'll be able to, to read uh, Louise's book choices. And if Chris Dolan's listening, uh, you've got to start reading to Louise as well. So uh, I'm sure he's got several copies of Laurie Lee's book, so I'm sure he would be absolutely delighted, Louise. You know, I might just drop him a line right now and tell him that we were talking about him and that if you could just check in with me at 11.30 every night once I've got my jammies on, my cup of tea, and if he wouldn't mind just reading to me on the iPad, that would be quite good. I'd like that. You know, if nothing else comes of me doing the podcast, if that happens, I'll be a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Thank but you, listen, Paul. Thanks very much, Louise. It's been a real joy. That's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.